The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Scripture reading this morning is going to be found in a couple places. Um, if you're using the Bibles underneath your chairs, it's on page 37. We'll begin in Exodus 15, verse 22 through 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Exodus 16, 1 through 3. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 17, 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Repidium, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Let me pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for a, a teaching on grumbling. Um, maybe some of us need to hear it this morning, and we thank you for that. Um, but there's also a great teaching in your provision in spite of our grumbling. Lord, I, uh, I just pray that our hearts, our minds, our ears will be open to um, the truth you have to give us this morning. And I pray not only would we receive it, but, but we would be a vessel to take it and utilize it to your glory and honor. Um, and most importantly, to, people, to point people to um, our solution to all our problems, to, to a man nailed to a tree. Uh, who was sacrificed for our sin, uh, who has redeemed us, claimed us as his own, and uh, into glory we're promised uh, an inheritance. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. A lot of grumbling. Uh, yeah, I look at passages that I get assigned once in a while. I go, where, where do we go with this? Okay, we'll go with grumbling. I'm, I'm flexible. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I usually will ask a few questions in opening to um, kind of set up a, a um, I don't know what the right word is, a goal or a destination. So um, let, let me ask a few questions in opening up, um, and I'm going to make a, a, a large presumption. It's not always an accurate one in a crowd this big, um, but you, if you are a Christian, um, what type of expectations prior to coming to Christ did you have? 
about becoming a Christian. Um, did, did you think that after all this good news of a redeemer, of a savior, that you would experience a life of peace and serenity till death whisked you off to eternal bliss? Did, uh, did you think that you would be blessed with an intimate and harmonious fellowship with all other Christians? Uh, did, you, did you anticipate exp- experiencing a life of divinely inspired protection over yourself and all your loved ones? Uh, did you expect that all who learned of your conversion to understand your decision and that they would respond positively and see with the clarity you had that, that Jesus is for me. I, I need this Jesus too. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a little facetious about this. Um, I feel if you had no expectations as a Christian, I would consider you fortunate. Um, I also had some expectations personally, which made me push off Christianity for as long as I could. And, and those were, you would never have any fun, all right? No fun. It's over. Uh, staying out Friday night past 11 p.m. would be banned. Um, you, would, um, you would not have company that would keep you entertained. I just thought people were so boring. The Christians that I saw, um, I just thought were boring people. And, and if you're unsaved, trust me, we're not boring. Anything but boring. Um, and, and I thought that life would be more like a trudge of just grit your teeth and get through this world until you can die and then you can go to heaven. And, and I couldn't picture a lot of heaven. I thought like lots of people singing and hanging out with angels and just n- relentless nonstop singing. Now the weather would be good. There wouldn't be hateful bad things happening. Nobody would be dying. Um, so there, there wouldn't be you know, the horrors of life. But again, I'm like... That's not going anywhere. And it's horrifying to think about that because where do these expectations come from? And you pick things up through life. So as you go through life, you say, oh, well, that's, he's a Christian. He must be boring. Or he is boring, and you conclude that he, you, know, you don't want this. So let me ask this question. Did we expect, as we came to Christ, that we would have trials, that we would have temptations that were totally foreign to us as unsaved people. Like a whole new set of problems comes in the front door. Um, so you're tempted in dealing with things that, as a sinner, you just thought, that's fine. I do a swan dive into that every day. But now as, as a new creation in Christ, it's a battle. It's now a fight. It's a war. Did we, did we expect to be ridiculed literally by other people when we come to Christ? that you would be standing somewhere and a group of your peers would, would be hanging out and you would be intentionally left on the outside. Like you would feel like an outcast being in Christ. I suspect, and it's just a suspicion, that um, our expectations are probably similar to those who are married here with the expectations you had going into marriage. Okay? When, when, you, when you, you're getting ready to say, I do, and, and you're looking at her, and she's beautiful, by the way, and, and you're planning your life together, you have expectations. Um, would you classify those expectations in hindsight as misplaced, possibly unreasonable? Um, have your expectations been met in, in this institution of matrimony? Did your bride of your dreams fulfill all those expectations? Don't answer this out loud, by the way. Don't, especially if she's not sitting. Don't nod your head. You're going to get in trouble. You leave church with more problems than you came with. So, so the point that I really make with this is that a lot of these things, these letdowns, are, are things that are in our head that may or may not have any correlation with reality. 
Uh, maybe you're here today and, and having just finished college a while back or recently, and, and are your expectations of where that four-year degree would get you being fulfilled? Or are you in the same job you had going all the way through college, still doing those things, thinking, where did this get me? So let me ask the bigger question. When our expectations don't work out, when our expectations are left unfulfilled, how do we respond? And obviously, from the reading this morning, you you hear a lot of grumbling. And, And if you're human, you probably look around and you realize people aren't doing things the way you wanted. And how we voice that, it's kind of just this grumbling. Well, if they did what they said they were going to do, or if this happened, or they said they were, or this promised, and, and, and all of this underneath your breath grumbling. Um, and, and it's about how my expectations have not been satisfied. And it doesn't matter whether they're reasonable or, or not. My response is we grumble. And I'm going to take that a step further because as a Christian, somebody who professes that Christ is Lord and Savior, who is being led by the Spirit, we grumble just as well as the rest, if, if observation and personal experience is any indicator of this. And at the end of the day, what's at the, what's at the root of the grumbling? What's at the root? And I'm just going to ask that question in opening up. What's, what's ultimately, when, when I say I'm dissatisfied, I don't like the way life is turning out, what am I really saying? And you may say, I'm just saying, I don't like my life the way it turned out. But as a Christian, I think there's more there, and we'll get to that. So having said this, we want to do a recap and kind of put us in. We did the two weeks detour of the inter-denomin... No, 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 no. It's the doxa diversity. That's easy. That beats the interracial, all the other stuff. I'm going to go into discrimination. I don't know where that is. Okay, doxa diversity. We did two weeks of doxa diversity. Before we left off in Romans, we, we were covering the Passover and the final plague. We had the exodus of the nation of Israel out from under the Egyptian bondage, uh, out into the desert. Pharaoh pursues them. They approach the Red Sea. Moses parts the sea. They cross the sea victoriously, being pursued. They get to the other side. Sea covers up Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's armies like incomprehensible victory. And so we pick up in Exodus 15, 22 through 25, and it says, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert, finding no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? So literally three, could you imagine passing through the Red Sea, like literally having the waters part? watching Pharaoh's army pursue you and get covered up. And then three days later, the grumbling with Moses is saying, where is God? Or Moses, you're not doing your job. One or the other, either one is fine. So they grumbled. And it's interesting, they took it to Moses, by the way. They didn't take it to God. And I'm going to say something to kind of get us ahead of this, but... In the final analysis, this entire generation of people are going to die in the desert, minus Joshua and, I believe, Caleb. So this whole generation will get wiped out, and they'll be wiped out for good reason, by the way, because they were defiant, they were arrogant, they were unbelieving, they were idolatrous, um, and you could say godless, because their behavior indicated no, no relationship between God. And I always, you know, I was thinking about this preparing this lesson, and... I was wondering 
How many of these people were really saved? That when we get to a future heaven, how many of this generation, and it makes me very uncomfortable, by the way, because there is not a lot of evidence to indicate there were a lot of truly saved people here. So we read, they take it to Moses. Moses' response, verse 25, says, Moses cried out to the Lord. Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. And I love this because, you know, you see, Moses, is, it, would be, it would be a fantastic study to just skip Exodus and study the man Moses and to see how he deals with adversity, how he deals with trials, how he deals with all of the problems that he would encounter here. And we read he cries out to the Lord. And really the application there is when we, when we are sincere and we cry out to the Lord, how often has God left us on the side of the road? How often? And, and my response to that would be that in my personal experience, I've received tangible responses 100% of the time. And it's not always that it's immediate, but it's that God has always responded to my cries. That when I get, I love this statement, you know where you find God? At the end of your rope. And that's the only place when, when, when I come to that place where I cry out to God and I find him present then. And it's at the end of my rope because if I think I can do it another way, do I really need God? Am I really willing to consider what he's going to have to say to me? Have you ever asked somebody for something and in hindsight you realize you didn't want it? So they give it to you and you're looking at it, well, I really don't want this anyway. And then you're figuring out what to do with it. So they walk away and you put it down and you go about your business. Hopefully they don't see you put it down. But that's how it is between me and God when I really don't want to hear from him. That even if something comes to me and is given to me, that's nice, but thank you, but I really don't need this because I'm doing quite well on my own. And and it's really the truth that if I think I'm doing quite well on my own and I have no need for God, guess what? I have no need for God. Moses cries out. Now, I'm kind of of the opinion that, um, well, let me read 26, 25, the latter part of 25 and 26. Um, So the water is obviously taken care of, puts this piece of wood into the water. Uh, 25 and 26 continues. Then the Lord issued a ruling instruction to them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And I, I always, if you're a new believer especially, when you hear he put them to the test, I think, does God test people? I always get the confused. God doesn't, God doesn't tempt, but he tests. And there's a big difference between the two. Um, James tells us, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But he tests people and tests us all the time. Um, tested Abraham, Moses. Um, there's litany of scripture for this, and I'm not going to go there just for time's sake, but trust me, scripture's riddled with tests. And so here's a question. Why give them the test? Why is he's taking these people out? It's a, it was literally a three-week journey from uh, Egypt to the promised land. It will take 40 years, by the way. And again, none of those people will make it across. Why, why would he give them a test? And I, and I guess the simple question that, that would be behind that is why does God test us? So I want to I give you a principle here, and it's very just a statement of biblical truth, and this is it, that God's tests are designed to train us in obedience. God's tests are designed to train us in obedience. Now, the world's tests are a little different, by the way. 
The world's test, we get a test when we go to school. Why? To understand that you have enough knowledge or you're proficient in the subject matter. Um, we go get tested to get a driver's license, um, any type of professional license, engineers. And what is the purpose of all of these tests? And it's to denote a level of proficiency in that particular area. What is the one test that we don't have to take a, uh, or what is the one license we can take a, we do not need to take a test for? Does anyone know? Marriage. Isn't that horrifying? There definitely should be a test for marriage. I look around, some people definitely shouldn't be married, or I'm convinced they flunked the test, or maybe the professor just passed them through like they did with me a couple of years in school. So having said that, though, the, the real bottom line with the test is it's to determine or, or to reveal not so much knowledge as it is proficiency. See, you, you, we're showing knowledge with a driver's test, but when you're done with that test, what do they do? Do they say you passed and let you go out the front door? See, a good test, a good test is to determine whether or not you really know what you're talking about. And how do we know whether or not we're, talking, we're aware or knowledgeable of what we're talking about? And, and that is by the road test. You get a license, what do they do? They take you on the road test. And, and that's where the rubber hits the ground, to see really if, if our, and, and I think this is the biblical test to whether our belief matches up with our feet, to whether what we know about God and believe about God is actually put into practice in reality. And, and we only know that, that it's put into practice in reality by one thing, and it's our obedience. So let me ask this question. Are you getting put through some type of test today? Is there some type of test or trial that you're getting put through? Maybe in marriage, maybe a level of honesty or integrity, maybe a personal sacrifice. Maybe it's some type of test with what your priorities really are, where you're struggling. You know, I personally, I absolutely hate tests. Um, I have been traumatized by tests. I'm not even going to go into it. I I don't like tests. and the reality is, is that between us and God, the truth of his words is we're, we're going to be tested. Um, I look at tests, and when, I, when I'm in the middle of taking a test, you know what I start thinking? This is wrong. This is unfair. Or, the, or they didn't design the test the right way. If you want to know if I really know about what I'm talking about, you, you have to design the test in a way which will really reveal whatever you're looking for is the reality. There was a, um, the FAA does a test. Um, I call it the ballistic chicken test. Have you guys ever heard about this, this ballistic chicken test? Okay, so let me tell you about this. The FAA has this test where it's a device to test the strength of windshields on airplanes. And so the device is basically a, a gun, a big gun, that they stick a dead chicken in it, and it launches the chicken at the speed of which they dictate the airplane will be traveling. I, this would be a fun job, by the way. So they put the, chick, the ballistic chicken test, and I named it the ballistic chicken test. So this may not be real. This is on the internet. I saw something that said something, though, like a little YouTube blurb. Maybe it was in MythFinders. Maybe they tried this out. But here's the test. So they get the chicken in the gun, and they fire it at the windshield. And if it bounces off the windshield, the windshield's obviously structurally sound. Right? So the British are developing this locomotive, and they say, this sounds like that the people in America got it going on. Could we borrow the ballistic chicken tube? And so we loan it to them. So they go and get the thing, the chicken, and they fire it at the locomotive windshield. Now, here's what happens. It's called a chicken launcher, by the way. So I don't, okay. So they shoot it at the windshield. It goes straight through the windshield, through the engineer's chair, 
breaks the instrument paddle and is embedded in the wall behind the chair. So they step back and the British are kind of perplexed now wondering something really went wrong here. So they went back and asked the FAA, Did, was there a flaw in our test? And they did their study and made one recommendation. It was this, next time, use a thawed chicken. So just some thought there. So, so when I'm being given the test by God, trust me, there's no flaw in the procedural aspect of the test. It's, going to re, it's, it's designed to reveal the truth about where I am, about where my heart is, about where my priorities are. And almost, I'll say this, in the final analysis, God's tests ultimately reveal who he is to me. So if you're going through some type of trial, a couple things to suggest. Stop grumbling. Don't question the protocol for the trust. And look for what God is trying to show you about who you are and about who he is. So the, the principle, again, God's tests are designed to train us in obedience, but it re relates back to where we are, who we are, and who God is. So let me, uh, this is really fascinating. The, the last, uh, I want to read the last line, uh, chapter 15, 27. Um, didn't have the right page here. So it says, they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they, and they camped there near the water. And it's interesting, biblical numbers are a big deal. You see here how many palm, we had 70 palm trees, seven is the number of perfection, and we have 12 springs, 12 disciples, 12 tribes, really interesting stuff with that, and I don't have time to go into it, so we are going to move on from here. All right, move out of the biblical chicken test. Uh, chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Um, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died in the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us to the desert to starve this entirely assembly to death. This is really interesting. Again, who's this directed at? It sounds like Moses has a vendetta against these people, and it's, it's like, wait a minute, who just brought you out from under the slavery and oppression of the Egyptian people? Who just buried the army? Who has, who has led you, who was in charge of and, and displaying his power and his glory through the plagues? And then all of a sudden they're saying, you brought us out here to kill us. Now, if I were Moses, I know what I would have said, yes, and I would have said no more prayers, I would have been done. It tells you where I am versus where Moses is. Do you know who the most humble man recorded in history is? Well, biblical trivia, Moses, which is really pretty fascinating because he doesn't take it personal. Um, he, he takes it spiritual and he takes it to God. Um, I would submit again that with a declaration like this, these people um, have no spiritual reference. Um, they're going to be proving themselves through the course of the rest of this study that they are idolatrous, that they are godless, that they are disobedient, uh, that they are stiff-necked, um, and that they can't follow directions. And it will happen repeatedly, time and time and time again. Do you know there's a guy by the name of Ralph Charrell who has taken the, the, the first place in world-class world com complaining? There's a book out there, Significa. It gives a uh, listing of, these, of crazy facts. Ralph Charrell. Charrell is classified as the world champion complainer. 
He received $100,000 as a result of systemic, uh, relentless complaining. And here's the point. Don't tell him that complaining doesn't pay. He's written two books. Uh, the smallest refund he ever got was $6.95. Largest refund was $25,000. Uh, the article on this guy records that he spends time every day making phone calls and writing letters to complain. And the two books he's written, How to Get the Upper Hand and How I Turn Ordinary Complaints into Thousands of Dollars. And the only thing I could think with this guy is that the Israelites have taken notes from this guy and have read both his books. Um, un unbelievable. So there, there's a crying out from Moses. God simply responds in Moses, uh, excuse me, in chapter 16, 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people will go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I am to test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses brings in, explains this provision, and then, and then brings a rebuke following this in, in verses 8 and 10. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord who gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against God. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. So real specific again, it's interesting how we get the, the, the heads up from Moses that who are they complaining against? Complaining against the Lord, not Moses. They're saying to God, they're complaining to Moses, but they're actually complaining to God. So let me ask you this question, and we see the word, another test come up. So there's this relentless theme of these complaints, taking things to Moses, tests following, and then this issue about them complaining to God. So when we complain, and I don't care what it's about, when we're, when we're unhappy with what's going on in our life, who ultimately is the complaint directed at? Who are we telling we're dissatisfied with the way our life is working out? Who are we telling that we're dissatisfied with the people that have been placed in our immediate circle? Who are we telling? There's a, a reading in Oswald Chambers. I believe it's in September. I read Oswald Chambers, a little devotional. And, and he said this, watch the people that God places around you. And this will be God's way of revealing to you the person you have been to him. Let me say that again. Watch the people that God brings around you. And this will be his way of explaining to you the person you have been to him. And when I read it that morning, I was, I was livid about a handful of people in my life and was on a tear concerning complaining. Now think about that for a minute. That if I'm dissatisfied with everybody around me, and this is God's way of revealing the person I am to him, what does it say about me to God? And I think often God does that with us. He will reveal to us in our relationships who we are to him. I said to my son one day, I said, how blind and stupid could you be? You know what echoed in my ears for the next week? You know, it wasn't the voice, literal voice of God, but it was this consciousness of Jonathan, how, how blind and stupid could you be? I said to a person in my heart one time, this guy was sharing in a small group study, and he said, I'm too stupid to take care of myself. And I thought, what an idiot. 
The guy too stupid to take care of himself. Well, why don't you just wise up and start taking care of yourself and follow directions and work hard? And as the next, as the next week proceeded, I heard, who's protecting you from the oncoming car? Who's letting your heart continue to beat? Who's watching over your kids as you've left the house? Who's there protecting them? Who's watching over them? Who's sending business in your front door? Who's allowing you to have the physical abilities to go and produce and make money and take things home and go to the grocery store and do all these things? And by the end of the week, I was convinced I'm too stupid to take care of myself. So having said that, as we see these things here, they, they, direct, they direct their complaints at Moses, but it's to God. And God simply responds, which really blows me away, and this is really the truth with me. I'm so grateful, is, is that God doesn't respond with a stern rebuke. He says, Jonathan, we'll let you take this test again. If you don't pass most tests and you really want to be certified in that particular area, what do they do? They'll allow you to take it again. Um, with one of the horrifying tests, the bar, the bar examination for lawyers, uh, they'll allow you to take the test three times. If you flunk it three times in a row, then you have to go back to law school. So in life, if we think this through by the parallels of how God is treating these people by saying, okay, here's the deal. You drop the ball. You're complaining. You're grumbling. It's not about Moses. It's about me, and I'm going to give you a test. And he gives them the test, and they flunk it. And we're on round two now, and he gives them what? Another test. And he says to them, you'll pick up this food at a particular time. There's only so much you should pick up, enough for your household. On Saturdays, do twice, or it should be on Fridays, technically. On Fridays, you'll do twice as much, and on Saturday, you'll pick nothing up. And then we read through the passage. Guess what happens? You got people coming home with how much? Too much. And God doesn't strike them with lightning. He lets maggots eat the thing, and it rots, simply letting us know that, that, that when we do it our way, what's the result? What is the fruit? of what we do. And then for the other people who go out and they're out on Saturday looking around and guess what they find? Nothing. So the principle here really is this. It's God's provision is designed to trust him for our daily needs. God's provision. God's provision is designed to trust him for our daily needs. God's provision is designed to trust him for our daily needs. And what I mean by this is that God's provision, what we're seeing are displays of God's provision time and time again. We pray the Our Father, give us this day our, what kind of bread? Daily, yeah. Didn't say weekly. And I'll tell you this, this is, there's loads of scripture. Matthew 6, 25 through 27 says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you should wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or they reap or store food in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And the theme of that isn't that we don't have to take care of ourselves. That would be an irresponsible, reckless person say, well, I'm not going to worry about grocery shopping for the week. God will provide me food tomorrow. So you go grocery shopping daily. That's crazy. The passage concludes with the key here, and it says, can any of you by worrying? You see, they say, take care of the logistics, but if you're going to spend time worrying, it's a waste of time. That's, and, and it continues on again in Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. I think refrigerators have really messed us up in our relationship with God. And here's why. You can get a week's supply of food and put it in there, and you have no more worry about God's daily provision. Um, and, it, and it's an interesting thought, but it really, each little thing that happens in my, my life either tethers me toward God 
or loosens my tether toward him. And I don't know if a refrigerator is a good thing. I'm, I'm, personally, I like my refrigerator, though. Um, the, the, there's another principle in here, and it's that man is designed to carry no more than 24 hours worth of burdens. And, and I guess that's important to say that because that's really what we're carrying when it goes beyond a 24-hour day. So how often have your young children questioned you about there being enough food in the cupboard for that day? Yeah, how many of children? Have your children, who those of you who have children, have your children ever said, Daddy, I think you're going to have a problem with the mortgage this month. Could you assure me it will get paid? <laughs> ever. I mean, I got four kids. Never once. And the youngest is 14, so she's still got a little room, but I think she's probably, she may be questioning that now by saying she wants money for something else. Um, but beyond that, Never. And, and, and scripture tells us that as we approach God, what, what is the state of our hearts supposed to be like in the manner to which we approach him? To be his little children. To look to him as a, simply as a child saying to his father, will you care and provide for me? And think this through. How much so if our worldly fathers have cared and provided for us, will he care and provide for us? So you put this in context of where we are in the desert and you kind of start scratching your head saying, this is really kind of crazy. This really is kind of this story about these people who witness this massive display of God's power and his presence and his provision. And what we're going to witness throughout the course of this desert journey is going to be the same thing over and over and over. Different facts, different players, different events. Same God. Same God. So God's provision designed to trust him for our daily needs. Um, and we close this chapter with a directive to take an omer of manor and put it in a jar to be kept for generations. Um, and this is a, just an important note. They, they would put that in the Ark of the Covenant, and there would be things, three things in the Ark of the Covenant. That would be um, in the Holy of Holies, there would be this seat with these two cherubim, these angels, and inside the covenant, the things which commemorate the actual presence of God would be a jar of manna, the law, and Aaron's staff that budded. And it tells you, again, the significance and the importance of what's taking place in this passage on how God, how profound his provision is. That one of the three most important things he would do to display his significance and power and presence is a little jar with a biscuit inside of it. And I'm joking about the biscuit. Don't, don't say there was a biscuit. I don't know what it was. It was like, what do they say? A type of uh, seed with, it tastes like honey or something in it. So having said that, we're going to move on because I'm, Never going to get through on time. 17, 1 through 3 verses. Uh, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at, it was Rephidim. Thank you, Becca, for that. I didn't know how to pronounce that. I hope I pronounced it correct. But there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, I love this. Now Moses is like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? He leapfrogs the whole thing, saying, skip it. I'm not arguing with you guys anymore. This is between you and God. But the people were thirsty for water, and, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Now, didn't we just hear the same kind of story before? And again, it, it indicates a state of their heart. This continuous murmuring, quarreling, grumbling, as various verses would say. And, you know, it's interesting when we study stuff like that, one thing becomes really apparent to me. How destructive, how um, corrupt, how um, distracting, and how hurtful murmuring, quarreling, and grumbling can be. 
And, and I was thinking about this because this is God's people with God's leader leading them out to the promised land. And, and, and I was just thinking about this within our church at Doxa. Um, there, I got a statement in bold here. I'll just read it. In some churches, the only thing people are willing to give is a complaint. Um, that's pretty horrifying, but I think it needs to be said. Um, I've said this for years. If you want to complain about Doxa, I'd ask you to do four things. First, um, pray daily for the elders and their spouses that God would give them wisdom, that he would have a provision, that he would protect them physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Then pray for the ministry that you're not happy with within Doxa. Go to the person running it. Volunteer that you will serve in that ministry. Faithfully tithe to that church. And if you do all of those steps and still find the ministry lacking, you can quarrel, but do it with me, not with Randy or Dale. So I've modified my complaining a little bit. I'll take the complaint after you've done that. And you know what you find once you've done all those things? Is that you've got nothing to complain about. You look over and you see these people struggling and killing themselves to serve within the body of Christ. There's that statement, 90% of the work is done by how many people? 10%. And it might be 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. But the truth of the matter is is that if the body of Christ is failing, it's because the membership is failing. That's the bottom line with the failures within the church. So if you don't like it, pray for those who are in leadership. Pray for the particular ministry. And again, sometimes it's logistic. We don't support the body of Christ economically. It doesn't work, period. And I'm not a guy that says swing a stick at you what you should be giving, but we should be giving, period. We should actually be giving four things, our time, our talent. Uh, We should be giving God's word, the truth, and our worldly treasure. Money's just a fourth of the equation. So having said that, I want to move on. So by now, Moses has figured it out. His skin is thickening up, and he says, go take it to God. Um, You know what really annoys me? When I ask a question and you respond with a question. But you respond with a question to make a point, to really make me think about the stupidity of my question. And I think that's what Moses did here as well. Um, Let me give you the principle. God's provision... God's provisions are designed to confirm his presence. See, it's not to satisfy and gratify me. I have logistics and worldly needs. But God's provision is to display his presence. I go, oh, there's God. He's present here now. Why? Because a loaf of bread shows up on my front door. So having said that, then Moses cried out to the Lord, who am I? What, oh, excuse me, what am I to do with these people? That's a great statement. I mean, just he's like, I'm done. Um, they're almost ready to stone me. So he's also getting worried. And I don't mean to make light. If you go three days without water, I don't know if anyone in here has ever even come near that. Um, so the logistics here are a big deal. The heat comes on, and, and these people have a legitimate concern. It's not the legitimate concern that is the problem. It is how we are dealing with the legitimate concern and the problem. So the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with them some of the elders of Israel. Take your hand with the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders. And he called the place Massa uh, and Meribah because the Israelites quarried and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so let me ask you a question this morning, a fair question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Simply yes or no question. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, I don't know. And i got to be honest with you, that's a fair answer. I'd rather have you say, I don't know if that's the truth, 
than sugarcoat it and say, praise the Lord, oh, he's providing just fine for me. Because if we're not real about where we are, it ain't going forward. Was there a time in your life where you could look back where you saw that you experienced God's presence and divine provision? There was a time in my marriage, I had three kids. My wife still had baby fever, and she wants to have another kid. So I say to her, I said, well, we're not having any more kids until we can get a minivan big enough to drive them all home. We only had a car that seated really comfortably for, it was like four-door car, so we need to get a minivan. And I said to her, I'm cool, but we need something big enough to ride everybody home from the hospital after you have your child. And I said then, um, with a level of peace, I just, I said, it's, so we got to get a minivan. I'd like a Honda Odyssey. I'd like low mileage, and it has to cost less than $15,000. To which she responded, I guess we're through having kids. Fair, true story. Nine months goes by. Isn't that interesting, nine months? How long does it take to have a kid? How long does it take for God to answer some of these prayers? Nine months goes by. Um, I had went to the Honda dealership in the meantime and said, hey, if you get an Odyssey low mileage, less than 15 grand, pick up the phone and give me a call. And nine months passes, and I get a phone call from the Honda dealership. And on the same day, I had resolved a case at work where I had gotten um, some of money that I would get bonused immediately. And I get a call from the Honda dealership that... um, They have a Honda Odyssey. It has uh, 32,000 miles on it. It has the 37,000-mile tune-up already done. And it costs, drumroll, $12,500. So I go home and tell my wife, and after she made some derogatory comment about me and God conspiring to make her look foolish, she looked at me and asked the question, does this mean we can have another baby? To which I responded, yes. Let's try she was pregnant 30 days later, by the way. <laughs> I just, you know, I look back on this as such a sweet time in my life because it's, it's where you... Re- I wanted more kids. I'd have a ton of kids. But it was where we said, I'm not going before until we can trust God with his provision. Is anyone here questioning that God actually provided at that particular time in my life? And it gives me great solace that, that we use a track record to say, has God really been there? Has he really provided? Have we really trusted him? And it gives me a great sense of solace that it confirmed his presence in our marriage. The um, last note here, and I don't have the time to go into it, but, they, but they, they run into a fight with the Amalekites, I believe. Moses gives his command to Joshua, go out and fight. And what's really fascinating is that they tell him to hold up his hands and that keep your hands up, you'll win the battle. And as he puts his hands down, Joshua starts losing. So they put a rock under him and they hold his hands up and there's the victory with him lifting his hands up. And I love verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 6. It states, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. And when there's victory in our lives, the question really is this, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? So the moral of today's teaching, um, that if God doesn't do it our way, we grumble. Is that fair? That if God doesn't do it our way, we grumble? That the grumbling reveals our state of unfulfilled expectations, whether they're physical, emotional, spiritual, unmet desires. And and I'll say this again, that our grumbling most of the time is directed at those around us, but it's not at them. How many of us would like to say, I'm angry with God and stomp your foot today? Nobody. I mean, that's, that's uncomfortable to say that I want to go to God and say, I'm angry with you. I don't like the way my life is turning out. I don't like the way, whatever it is. But truthfully, that's really what, what did Moses say? This isn't a problem with me. 
take it to God. And the reality is, is that when we take these unmet expectations to God, it starts to burn away whether they're unreasonable expectations. My experience has been the vast, vast majority of my expectations have been unreasonable when you take them before God compared to what I have received. We are just like the Israelites. We're heirs to the promises of God. We live in a land of religious freedom. Um, the worldly needs are provided so far beyond us. There are people who would walk in and look at the food table with the coffee over there and be freaking out to think that this is a, is, is a beautiful buffet of food. The majority of the people in the world, I shouldn't say majority, only 2 billion of the people in the world live on $2 or less a day. And here we are, grumbling. By the grace of God, we have the promise of eternal life, everlasting inheritance. So what's the point? As we sit here 3,500 years later reading about this erratic, ungrateful, cantankerous group of what I see as unbelieving people being led by this, this guy who's saying, God, I'm trying to honor you. What is, what is the moral for us? And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us these things. He says in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under a cloud and that they passed through the sea. And the next 10 verses talks about this story being given to us. It culminates this story. All these things happen to them as examples and written down for warnings for us. So the question starts becoming when we correlate what's going on here with what's going on here. A warning for who? Us. So what the, what's the first warning, really, that, that sin has consequences? You see these tests that are given each time with consequences. If you don't follow it here to my command, you're going to wind up with the same disease Israelites had. And you're going to see more and more of this coming on. And so let me ask you the question, the truthful question, just in your heart, in your mind. When you take yourself, bring you before a holy God, and, and he says, how have you done on the last three or four tests I've given you? How do you respond? A test to love your brother as yourself. A test to give, to give sacrificially. A test to spend time with me in, in, in my word. A test to, to really care and bless those around you. To make it a priority to open your mouth about the things I'm doing for you with all those people surrounding you. Those tests to proclaim the good news. And if you're like me, I'm going to tell you the truth. I flunk those tests quite often. Let me give you the last principle. God's tests are designed to bring us to the cross. God's tests are designed to bring us to the cross. Not, nothing has changed for the Israelites failing to uphold God's perfect and righteous law today. How are we in upholding God's perfect and right and just and holy law? So when we drop the ball, how do we respond? Do we grumble? Do we say that if they had done it right or if they had done it differently or if I'd been raised in a different home, I would have done a better job? Do we blame those people around us for having dropped the ball, completely fail and disregard the fact that we're voicing our dissatisfaction with life basically to God but won't admit it? Does the test, when I fail it, bring me to the foot of the cross? That's the real question. When I, not if, when I flunk the test, do I realize now I love that statement. There was bitter water. And what did he throw into the water? A piece of a tree. A piece of the tree can take bitterness and make it sweet. A piece of the tree that our Lord and Savior was hung on. 
So do we grumble, blaming others, or do we seize upon the grace of knowing that God, that we have failed his test to be faithful and obedient? Know this in closing, that God can take whatever bitter event in your life is going on and make it sweet. Know, know that when it looks like God can't raise up what we need, he will rain it down from heaven. And know this, that when our arms are raised in praise to him, thanks be to God, he gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth uh, about us as there is the truth about the Israelites you led out from Egypt. Father, I I pray for the person here today um, who is failing tests that they don't think they'll ever pass, Lord. Um, I pray that they would experience your grace, your forgiveness, your redemption, your kindness, your love, your favor, um, that they would know you that these tests, um, at the end of the day, bring us to the foot of your cross. And um, that, 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 is, that is the end of where we wind up when all is said and done. Father, thank you for your grace that we find there. In his blessed name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.